Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The helicopter comes in and it lands and doors fly open and the body comes out and I, I see it, it's Benny. Mm. And it was like that moment of, oh my fucking God. Yes, sir. What if the writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens? Where people don't change? More reflection of the real world. Nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? Welcome to A Theory of Mind, a podcast about minds, brains, and the lived-in experience of change. I'm your host, author Ben McKelvey, and in this episode, I sit down with Mark Billy Billingham, a man you may remember as the intense grey-haired drill sergeant screaming at Foresta Rani or Chappelle Corby on The Seven Network's SAS Australia. But he is so much more than just that. Billingham is a longtime veteran of 22 Squadron SAS with combat experience across the world. He was deployed numerous times in numerous battlefields and he spent a little time on a secretive task force in Iraq for which he was named a member of the British Empire or MBE. After leaving the military, Billy became a bodyguard for some very high profile stars including Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie and Tom Cruise. And now, alongside his television work, Billy is an author and a public speaker. In this conversation, Billy and I talk about his career and the resilience required to do the things that he's done. And we speak a bit about identity, which is a really interesting subject for someone who went from being one of the least photographed people in the world as part of a very secretive Tier 1 Special Forces unit to becoming one of the most photographed in the world, standing next to people like Brad and Angie. Billy is a very engaging and personable guy. And someone who knows how to tell a story and I can imagine that his speaking engagements will be a great night out. There are three coming up here in May, one each in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and if you want to go along go to the website markbillybillingham.com that's markbillybillingham.com or stick around for the end of this episode for more details. As always, if you want to keep up with the show do so at my Instagram which is at bennymck, B-E-N-N-Y-M-C-K or at Facebook which is facebook.com slash Writer. and now... Mark Billy Billingham. There was a place I wanted to start, and it wasn't the beginning. It was, to a certain extent, the end. Um, I'm always interested by uh, what it's like for people who are who are leaving the situation that you were in previously when you were in a sort of high-tempo Special Forces unit. Can you tell us a little bit about the end of your career, your last deployment, and then the decision to, to leave the military and do something else? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean... I, I actually felt like it was, it was just going to be a natural step out because prior to leaving the military, I did a little bit of sort of moonlighting work and a little bit of bodyguard work. And I thought, yeah, this is fine. I can adapt to this. No, no problem at all. And my last posting, so I, I, I'd left sort of um, tier one operations as in jumping through buildings and doing all that sort of stuff in Af- Afghan and Iraq and all that stuff. And I'd spent the last two years out in Brunei as a salt major of the jungle school training, training. So it felt like it was going to be a natural progression until I got out. And then it was an absolute unbelievable culture shock. Mm. So what, what I, you know, what 
I didn't seem to have any worries at all over them finding work, if I was honest. But then I'd, I knew I was already going to step into it because I'd have been offered it. What I didn't realize and I took for granted was actually what the military pro provides for you. You know, uh, it was a, and I'll give you a, a, a very simple example. I'd only been out of the army about a week or two. I, I hadn't long got divorced. I had to find a place to live. So I had a place to live. And um, I went to the dentist and I went downtown, found the dentist, walked in and the girl said to me, yeah, what's your problem? I says, well, I've got a bit of toothache. I need to see a, a dentist. I says, okay, are you registered? And I looked at her and went, what do you mean registered? Oh, you've got to register. Uh, okay. So I did that and then I'm stood there. She goes, okay, there'll be, an, and this was in the January or something. She says, yeah, there'll be a, your appointment will be sometime in March. I'll email you. The I went, what are you talking about? Yeah. I want to see the dentist. And she goes, oh yeah, there's a big wait. And I couldn't get my head around it. You know, now I had to find a dentist. There's a waiting list. Yeah. And it was, then there was the same with doctors and all that. And now I've got to work out, pay my council tax, pay. And it was all stuff that obviously living at home, my wife at the time had taken care of. And also the military, because you spend, you know, so much time away from the family anyway, and you live in the military life that a, they took care of the doctors, the medical mm. dentists, food, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that was the culture shock for me. And I struggled with it. You know, I, was, I got my daughters to open all the mail and make sure that I was registered with a council and I was doing this and I was paying that. And, was, and it was a nightmare. I'm still, I'm a nightmare to, that, to be honest. A bit of, um, you know, dealing with my parents when we're talking about technology, because it's something that, you know, they sort of have to approach, you know, they have to use a smartphone, they have to use email, um, but it's very difficult to them. It's, it's sort of a culture shock. Yeah. yeah. And I'm still a bit of a dinosaur. I was to the latter end of my military career where, you know, the technology, the emails, the, 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 the you know, uh, trails of emails and all that sort of stuff was all coming in and computer and I refused to do it. Mm. I refused to use it. And even as, a, I'll never forget it when I took over as a sort major of the Sabre Squadron. And uh, the guy before me was laughing. He goes, now you're nailed. You've yeah. got to use a computer. Yeah. And I went, really? And I swear to you, I'm in his office and I've got a clerk sat there. So I'm sat there and he goes, and I was a bit of a biff with the old computer. And, I, and I, he says, look, look at all these emails. He says, what you're going to get a day as a sergeant major running a squadron. I went, really? And I went, watch this. And so I, I lit everyone up, delete, delete the light. He went, fuck, what are you doing? And I went, listen, mate, if, if that's important, they'll come back to me. Yeah. And I have, I have an international pager on my waist. I have, a, I have a local pager. I have a phone. I actually had two phones. I said, if they can't get hold of me, there's a problem. And this is what I did, and I swear to you, Ben, I went around every department of the camp in the SAS, and I said, I'm up there. I'm on this pager. You want me, you call me. Don't send me an email because I will not answer it. And people were like, oh, you know, some departments were like, oh, you're going to have to. And I went, well, I ain't. I won't be doing it. You'll be getting an email back from the clerk. I'll tell him what I need to know, you need to know. And that's it. You won't get one from me. And when I got to the CEO, the CEO was just, he, he just couldn't believe the, the cheek. <laughs> he just looked at me and went, okay, okay, Billy, that's fine. And I tell you, mate, I, if, I, if I sent free emails throughout my career as a sergeant major, that's all I ever did. I just couldn't do that in personal thing. And yeah, yeah. I'm, one of these, I'm one of these people as well. If I open an email, I read it wrong. I think somebody's getting aggressive with me and I'm losing, I lose my shit. I'm like, help you know, so I want, let's just, let me just call him and see what this is all about. You know, yeah. I, I like to have clarification and confirmation dealt if, you know, but people go, yeah, but it's, it's a, or is it, it's, it's a, um, the trail to say that you've actually followed up and you've done it. I was, well, if you don't trust me, why am I in yeah. this job for a start? Yeah. 
if I'm going to tell you I'm going to do it, I'll do it. If I can't do it, I'll tell you I can't do it. Or if something's gone wrong, I'll call you and tell you something's gone wrong. Yeah. You don't need to pull up a paper trail to say, well, you said you were going to do it and this, you know, I don't <laughs> want to be in that. Let, let's trust each other because that's what this job's about. In the last period of your life where you could actually do that in that job, though, I can't imagine somebody being able to come in now and getting away with that. I think the guy coming behind me tried it a little bit, but he probably got nailed down. He wasn't probably yeah. as, as strong-minded and, and pig-headed, to be yeah. honest, yeah. as I was. And I just, I'm here as a soldier. I know what I'm doing. I, I'm not committed to paper. And yeah. I, I didn't. And I didn't. Even when we were out, you know, in conflict and stuff, you know, when we were back in the headquarters, there's paperwork to be done. I had a clerk there yeah. who knew how to do it properly. He knew the punctuation. Rather than, you know, Billy Age 5 writing out in a crayon, which it looked like, I had the right people doing the right job. I had the team yeah. around me. So, but you're right. I think nowadays it's more technical and it's more, I probably wouldn't survive. To be honest. Yeah. Specialization. And it wasn't filling in forms and it wasn't, you know, doing emails. Um, but one thing I, I would be interested in knowing about was when you transitioned, did you, did you have any problems with your identity? Um, because as a soldier, you, you know, especially when you're doing the type of work that you were doing, you heavily identify personally as a soldier and as somebody who does this work and when you don't do this work did you did you have any problems i, I think i did a little bit i don't think i was too bad but I, yeah i guess i did have a little bit because one minute i was like i was like this god i was a sergeant major i was telling people what to do and people recognized who i was and i had authority then the next thing you know some little scroll in the street and look at him like as if you're a little bit of shit and you want to grip him and be like, who the fuck are you? You know? So yeah, I, I guess I did, but I, I, I kind of quickly adapted and realized, you know, I, 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 in my head, I think I had the, the two little sort of devil and angels and you know, the devil was going grip him and tell him what to do. Get, you know, tell these people how to sort this out. But the other side was going, Hey, you ain't the sergeant major no more yeah. you are now back at the bottom of the pile you're just like everybody else so i adapted pretty quickly but i, I think i did it, i did sort of i was aware of it for a while but i think what helped me was uh, maybe i did a little bit of moonlighting before i left so i kind of already realized that you know and a lot of ex-soldiers will tell you this i couldn't rely on the people i was working with like i could in the army if i said i need, I need it or if someone said to me be here at seven o'clock in the morning i'll be there at 10 to 7 because yeah. i'm used to it yeah you know, most, not everyone, but a lot of civilians, you're right, be at 10 to 7, you don't see them until 8 o'clock. And you, you can't, you soon find, you can't rely on people the way you do in the military. So that was kind of affecting me a bit. And I was kind of losing my rag and getting a little bit sort of irate about things and realised, you know what, I ain't going to change the world from spinning. I'm going to get paid at the end of the day. I've just got to do as best I can and bite, bite the bullet and get on with it. So that's what I did. You were doing. Um... This was close protection stuff already. Yeah, it was. It was a little bit of uh, well, it was it was sort of personal protection and sort of uh, you know sort of industrial sort of security stuff. You know, on looking after property, vehicle stuff, and but mainly it was close quarter stuff. You know, bodyguarding. Doing you know the protection of vehicles and properties and things like that. You know, you'd been doing these things. You know, a lot of hostage rescues, a lot of things that were that were, you know really made a difference. And now you're doing looking after some rich bloke's car. Well, I'll tell you what, man. I think it took me back to where you just says, you know, go to the back when you left. What did what was difficult was one knowing the support system around me, two realizing I've got to find, I've got to work to get a job. I've got to earn some money. Yeah. 
I ain't gonna get, you know, in the army, you get paid all the time. Well, you work hard, don't get me wrong. And you know, you do risky stuff, but you knew you're gonna get a wage. Once you're out, you don't. Yeah. So if some rich bloke's gonna pay me 400 quid a day to look after his house or his bit, as mundane as it is, I'm gonna do it. You know, yeah. it's driving me mad. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm better than this, but I'm also actually, you know what, it's a job. Because you came from a, do you think it might be because you came from a working class background? You know, you recognize that, you know, Days work for a day's pay, all that sort of stuff. It's it's absolutely that, Ben. Yeah, you know, I, I've always been a grafter. I've always worked. You know, from the age of fifteen, from the from the age of eleven, I was working on market stalls. I was working with helping the milkman at five o'clock in the morning before going to school. Um, and then at the age of fifteen, I actually had my first proper illegal twelve hours a night job working in a factory, totally illegal. Yeah. But so I've never been shy of work. I've always been work, work, work. So. You know, that, that my work ethic helped me and made me realize I've got to earn money and I've got to work. Whatever that work is, whether it's physically demanding, mentally demanding, or whether it's just mundane, sitting looking after somebody's front gate or property. It's just work. It pays the bills. It's work. I have to yeah. work until I can find something better. I was always looking for something better, something that I'd be interested in, you know, something more demanding, something more challenging. But I had to take what was around. And that, that's what it was. That, you know, I'm... I'm not above working in mundane jobs, <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. um, now I'm where I want to be. Absolutely. Uh, this, this may seem like a little bit of a stretch, um, but saying that, you know, work is just work, you know, you, you, you're not above doing things that are, that are shit work and, and that are difficult and that are, that are boring. Um, did you always see your work with the SAS as just work um, in that, you didn't apply your uh, your moral standards to the conflicts that you're in. You didn't you didn't say this is the right one, this is the wrong one, this is the grey one, this is the white and black one. This is just the work. Um, did you did you was that your perspective? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't me. I'll, I'll tell you something about that. That's the thing about you know with the, with the regiment. You know, it's the thinking man's army. I mean, the army's everybody in the army is a thinking man's army, but. No, I think every task, I realised the level we were working at with the regiment is strategic level. It had a massive impact on people's lives, yeah. policy, you know, world direction. It really did. Some of the stuff that we did, I took it very, very, I took every single job, you know, as an individual job and looked at it and go, and, and the first thing I'd ask myself, are we doing the right, is this, should we be doing this? Mm. You know, forget the big picture now, forget the political, but hang on, should we really be doing this? What's the impact of this? So I took every every single job very very personally. You know, what's the what's the damage to this? What's the outcome to this? What's the risk to this to me, to my team, to the people, to the to the collateral damage? I did. I assessed everything, mate. Because fortunate or not fortunate, you know, I, I most of my career was on a warpath. When I joined, I joined Belize in '84, and I classed that as an operational tour because I was a young 17 and a half year old kid, and we're we're on the um, you know the patrolling the jungle borders between Guatemala and uh, and people were getting shot at. We were getting mm. shot at. And to me, it was like, wow, you know, this is real. So I'd learned a lot all through the years and, you know, all through the European campaign, the Bosnia, the Macedonia, Kosovo, I've been on all of them. So I realized, you know, this has a massive impact on everything. We're not just taking an order and off we go and go and do it because we've been told to do it. You know, there's a, there's a fucking impact to this. And as a Sergeant Major, you know, being, you know, privy to the information that I got then, that level of information, I'd go, hang on a minute. You know, you could talk about the invasion of Iraq. Was it right? Ethically right? Was it? At the time, with the information that I 100% believed, yes, 
I looked at him, what's the, what's the, you know, the outcome of this? Yeah, people are going to lose their lives, but more people are not. We've got to but, stop the badness to create the goodness sort of thing. Yeah, though, is that, you know, if you are the thinking man soldier, you know, like it, it, it sounds like you are, um, you still don't have the opportunity to say no, <laughs> you, know, you know, regardless you of do. what. You do? You do. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. If you look at the... Um, Bravo two zero. I mean, there's. I mean, you won't know the ins and outs. I don't know if I should even be saying it, but there's a number of patrols that were tasked to do that, and some patrols went, "I'm not doing it." Right. This is going to go fucking wrong, and this is. And, but some, and then some people go, "Well, I've got a different way to do this." You can. It might not look. You know, it might not come down on you too fucking well. You know, if somebody else then goes out and does it and succeeds, and then you, then you've got to stand up and be counted. Yeah. But you've got to go. Yeah. I mean, so you do. You know, you know, it's it's a difficult decision to make, but I'll tell you what, if I didn't agree with something that I've been asked to do, I wouldn't do it. I actually wanted to ask you about, about Bravo 2-0. So you came into the regiment about 1991, is that right? Yeah. Um, and um, that that mission was 1991. Um, and then the book started coming a few years later. Um, there was Andy and Chris, I can't remember what their real names are, but but there were two very high-profile books that, that came. Um, what was the mood in the regiment when those books landed that those guys had sort of very publicly put themselves out there? It, it was it was not good. It was horrifying, you know, because we felt it was still too fresh. It wasn't really out in the domain. The stories weren't out there, blah, blah, blah. It, it wasn't good. And it, it, it created that real sour feeling of the book writing culture, the people talking, people being on TV. I know you come around to where I am now, but <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yeah, but I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, we can come around to why and how that's changed, but yeah. yeah. yeah so it, it wasn't good because, you know, I, I can't really quote a lot on it. I wasn't, I wasn't on Bravo 2.0. I've read some of the actual official reports and, and, you know, it's slightly different to yeah. what's in the book and what's, you know, in the film or whatever. So it, it wasn't good. It wasn't, what? That bad? Was it just because, you know, this is family? This is because family. Of the, ethos of the, reg the ethos of the regiment at the time, and, and still is, you know, that, you know, we don't talk about operations that are not in the public domain, not and are already talked about or known about. So yeah. that's, that's the, you know, we kind of stand by that. So, you know, we, and the reason they did write it is because they could write it. There was mm. no, we didn't have a contract then to say, you're not allowed to do this, you can't do that. And I think what opened the doors was, uh, de Billier, General De Billier wrote the first book. So that the guys that went, well, if he they can do it, he can do it. Mm. You know. So, but back to the question was, no, it was it was a sour feeling. People didn't like it, and even today, people don't like it. But it's a changing world, you know. Yeah. Back in the day, we, we couldn't take photos. I never took hardly any photos. You know, going through uh, all the stuff we did, we didn't. Now it's different. Now they're allowed because everybody's on social media now. It's a different world now. We the regiment, like everywhere else, moves with the times. We couldn't communicate with them. On most of the times, you know, I'd been away. You just, you weren't allowed to. Operational security. And you, okay, fair enough. But now, you know, to the latter end, like I say, you know, computers were coming in, uh, internet, phones were more accessible and, and more secure. So it changed. And it's mm. changed a lot more now. And actually, it actually, some of the stuff that like we've done or put out helps with recruiting now, you know? And everything we do now, when people go, well, you know, it's a bit hypocritical. Plus, you've wrote a book and you've done this. Well, actually, it's not because everything we do, we we report to um, disclosure cell in London, regiments, and say this is what we're going to be doing. This is what it is. 
And then they have the, they can then go, no, we don't need to do it or take that out or don't do that. So it's all cleared. If there's any talk of operations, if I talk anything about any operation, it's already been out in the domain. It's yeah. already out there. Do you know what I mean? So, and I, I, I have no reason to talk about anything other than really what's, it's about me. It's not about the operations, it's about how I felt and what I did and, and why we did what we did, you know. I wanted to talk to you about one of the operations that is out there in the public domain. Um, it was the, um, the, the mission in which you were, afterwards you were awarded the MBE. Uh, it was a hostage rescue mission. Um, it, was a, it was a peace activist uh, who had been held by a, a minor Sunni organisation um, in, in Iraq. Um, and he quite publicly didn't thank you and your team for, for rescuing him. Did you care at all in any way, shape or form? No, and again, mate, he, he's a great example of what the media say, what the media want. He did thank us. Yeah. I know for a fucking fact, because I went and got him, and he yeah. cried in my arms and fucking held me like, like he was a baby. He did thank us. In the cold yeah. light of day, when he, when he realised it's all over now, he forgot pretty quickly what we did, and then later on, he, he, he wasn't too kind, what he said. But I remember the first lot of messages going out into the papers and in the news of the world and on the news. He was ungrateful. He, he wasn't. He was, a, I can't remember his age. He was 60 odd, 70. He was, He's 90 he was today. Just, well, there you go. I don't yeah. even know if he's still alive. He was, yeah. he was, you can remember that block was six hours probably away from having his head taken off. He was yeah. fucking lucky. And all he could think about was he couldn't believe that, you know, bro. All of a sudden, he hadn't seen light for three months, and then he can see light, and there's me standing over him, and a bunch of people going, "You are now safe. We're the SAS." Mm. He was grateful. He, he 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 just he was overwhelmed, you know, with what was going on around him and and what had happened, and for the period of time that we saw him, you know, he he was, and then later on, obviously people get into his ear and and turned him because I think the initial part of when he went missing was. You know, we, we could have probably rescued him earlier initially because we knew where he was or we had a good idea. And then, you know, we came straight from the embassy to say, leave him alone. They don't want military intervention. They don't believe in the military. They don't like the military. They believe in yeah. God. God will save him. I went, we're right, busy enough. Luck. Okay, over yeah. to God. Good luck, yeah. God. And that soon changed after a few months when he was appearing on TV and they're going to cut his head off. God, God wasn't saying, hey, I'll do it with this. We had to deal with it. So, Yeah. That, but he, that, he, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, initially he was not, he, he was grateful. He was yeah. very grateful, I'll tell you that right now. I can imagine. Um, so that, that, that was an interesting period for the regiment um, because they were doing counterinsurgency work. Um, and I was just wondering if, if the British SAS were particularly uh, good at that work because they had counterinsurgency experience in Ireland previously. Was there anything applicable in Iraq at that time that the regiment was using um, from things that they'd learned previously in Ireland? Yeah, I'll tell you everything, mate. And um, I'll tell you everything. I mean, I'll tell you everything we do, every operation I've done, whether it's been in the jungle, in Africa, in the bush, in, in Europe, in, it's been an element of that going straight back to those foundations of working in Northern Ireland, you know, and the one ingredient I'll give you straight away is hearts and minds. Mm. Working with the people, not against the people. You got to remember, you know, if you look at the, the, the issues with um, Northern Ireland, you know, the IRA predominantly Catholic or were Catholic, 
not every Catholic is a bad person. They're, they're suffering as much as everybody else is. And you've got to realize that. So you, you, as soon as you tune into, listen, how about start working around, around the enemy, build the people around them to turn and give us the information or turn against them to, and that's what we did. And we did that everywhere, even in Iraq, you know, so we used a, an element of what we'd learned in Ireland and all the rest of it, dealing with hostage rescue or, or that sort of scenario and applied it to the Middle East. So yeah, absolutely we did. Um, in another podcast that you're in, you were talking about uh, when you're in Belize, and that was the first time that you saw a service-related death, um, and that was something that was was a really significant moment for you. Um, could you just elaborate a little bit more on, um, on on that moment and your understanding of service after that moment? Yeah. So, so just to give the full part of that story was, you know, I finished training. We, we had a couple of weeks leave and then we went up to the, the battalion, the Free Para, which were at the time deployed to Belize, Central America jungle um, deployment. And just while we were waiting for our sort of movement to leave UK and fly out and join the battalion, um, we did a thing called rear party where you go, you go up to the battalion lines and you do the security around the camp for a week while you wait and get. And then one of the guys there was a guy called Benny Bentle and he'd served quite a few years, you know, I've been to war with the Falklands, done, done all this, stuff, and a, a real nice guy. We'd just come out of training, so we'd been shouted at, barked at, and, uh, and that's what we expected. Then all of a sudden, this monster of a man, lovely bloke, he's talking to us like a human. We're like, mm. And he sat us down, and he, goes, and he said, look, young kids, as we were, 17 and onwards, like, he goes, when you get out there, this is what you need to do. And he kind of educated, to, you'll get the loud mouths. He goes, all the loud mouths have probably done nothing. The people you want to gravitate to and learn from are the quiet ones who get on with the job. And just, and it was great. And we really built a rapport with him. And he was such a lovely guy. And then he said, look, I'll actually join you out in Belize because I'm getting married. I'm coming out for the end of the tour to raise, a, save a bit of money. Then I'm leaving the army and getting married. So nice. So off we went. We all go out to Belize. Got a few little sort of operations, uh, patrols under our belts. You know, been out in the jungle, living for 10, 12, 15 days at a time, patrolling the borders. Come back. And then I remember one day, I was stood uh, by the, the football ground, the football pitch inside the camp, and all the alarms went off, which we knew what it was. When the alarms went, it's an emergency. Someone's dead, been mm. killed. And uh, I'm stood just overlooking where the Ellie's going to land, and I watch the helicopter come in. And as it lands, you know, I was kind of excited, but not really knowing what I was feeling. I was thinking, God, is, is this one of our guys? Is it one of the Belizean guys? What, what is this? We didn't know who it was. And then the medical team come around, the helicopter comes in, it lands, and I'm looking right into the sort of door side of it, the puma. The doors fly open, and the body comes out, and I, I see it, it's Benny. Mm. And it was like that moment of, oh my fucking God. It kind of scared the shit out of me. I was like, wow, this is real. Mm. That is, you know, I was talking to that bloke a couple of months ago, and, and it, it was horrible. It was horrible. But it, then it made me realize where I really was. This is real. And I'd already been out in the jungle and we'd had little skirmishes and it was all exciting because no one had been injured, nobody had been killed and I hadn't seen any of that. And then I saw that and I thought, wow. And it made me realize, you know, I asked myself a question, do I really want to be here? Because that could be a minute. And then I went, yeah, I do. Did you, did, this is when you were a paratrooper, presumably, before you joined the SAS. Um, 
when you did make that decision and you said, yes, I, want to, I, want, I really want to do this, was the decision made that you want to go as far as you possibly can with this and go through SAS selection afterwards as well? I'll be honest with you, mate. I wasn't thinking about SAS selection then. I was just thinking about I want to be a soldier. I want to climb the ranks and, and I want to go as far as I can. I want this to be my life, my career. Although I've seen that, uh, I thought, this is what I've signed into. This is what I kind of knew might happen. Yeah. And will happen. And I just thought, no, I want, I wasn't thinking about the SCS. I was thinking about, I'm staying. I'm going to make this my career. I'm, I'm at the bottom of the ladder. I want to climb that ladder. And I, I was determined to do that. Decision to, uh, to try for selection. Did you try a number of times for selection or were you selected on your first? On your first I only did it once, mate. I, um, I did nine years altogether with the parachute regiment. I did a number of operations with, with the regiment. So I got some experience. I'd climbed the ladder. I was a, an instructor. I went back to the training depot and taught the recruits. I think it was when I went back to the training depot, I'd made my mind up. Hmm. At the end of this two-year posting, I want a different direction. I don't want to go back to the battalion because I've done it now. I've been a lead. I've been a, a leader, although, you know, a small leader. I've, I've climbed the ladder. I've been in conflict. I know what it's all about. I've done the training. What can, what's next? And the parachute regiment was pretty operational and you never knew when it was going to come and go. But I also knew the SAS are doing stuff virtually every day all around the globe. Yeah. And I'd got a lot of friends of mine that had already moved on and gone out to um, join the regiment. And I kind of lost contact with them for a long time. But when you met them, you just knew they're doing great stuff. They never really talked about it or very little. You could work it out where they'd been from the news and what was going on in the military world anyway. And I thought, that's where I want to go. And it was at the end of when I midway through my um, time down at the depot training, I spoke to the commanding officer and said, I want to go on SAS selection. And you normally have to give two years notice. And my time was up after another year. And he says, right, you, I want you to stay in train with the, reg, with the parachute regiment for another six months. I'll let you go, but you just sit. And I, so that's what I did. But we, it worked great for me because the fitness level um, while I was in training, as you can imagine, every day, two ten miles a day, no problem mm. at all. So I wasn't worried about. It. I was I was in the perfect place to start for the fitness wise of it, you know. So that was it. I waited then till uh, my time finishing the depot, and then I went on the next selection. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's a thing in Australian SAS selection called the Happy Wanderer, which is uh, a very long pack march and uh, <clears throat> supposedly is a very long uh, dark night of the soul. Um, and I'm assuming that uh, it's based on something that's, uh, that's, that's in the British SAS selection. What is the difference between the person who decides that they don't want to do that anymore and the person who does decide to push on? I mean, what is it in the mind that, that gets you going and gets you gets you? persevering i'll tell you what mate you've just hit the nail on the head he says it's your mind it's not your physical ability it's your mind and it's 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 the one thing that i will say it's self-motivation because that's what the regiment is just like the australian ss is the same it's about self-motivation it's, it's not like the normal army where 
you know, you're going to go down 10 mile. He probably ain't feeling too good today. So the corporal or the sergeant will be a bit up your ass. Like you see on what you do on the show, which is unrealistic to the real, what you do in the SAS, screaming, shouting, going, get up here and dragging along as a part of a team. And makes you do it is you. You got to want to do it. Cause, and, and again, I've been an instructor on SAS selection. So I know exactly what it is. So, and I've been through it, of course. So they'll say to you, okay, tomorrow morning, we, we're, you're doing a 60 kilometer over the mountains, A to B, whatever the route, weight is 70 pounds, blah, blah. Make sure you're on parade at five o'clock. As nice as that, that's it. Not be on parade, da, da, da. and then five o'clock in the morning or quarter to five, they'll be there. All the vehicles are there, and you can get out of your bed and go, "Fuck it, I'm not doing it." And they'll just come to you and go, "Okay, Billy, pack your kit. There'll be someone to sort you out later on." Bye. Off yeah. You, go. you know, and for that first time for military guys, no one's screaming at you to do it. It's down to you now to say, "I want this. I want to do it." You know, and there's many mornings. Don't get me wrong. I'd, I'd wake up on my back and be killing me. My knees would be throbbing and thinking, I might just throw this in. And then you've got to say to your door, want, I want this, I'm going. And that is the biggest um, sort of eliminator of people who want it or don't want it. And mm. you see it, you know, because just like I did when I first joined the army, and we all do, we all judge everybody else's that if you're going in to do something, you're challenging other people and you're fighting for a position, we all do. It's just naturally you look at everybody and go, he looks so, he looks fit, he's got the kit, he looks like, you kind of put yourself down, which is a good thing, I think. And I did that when I did join the army, you know, 17, well, the time I got into the parachute region, I looked down the line and there was guys with tattoos and moustaches and mm. I thought, what the fuck have I done? I ain't gonna be able to do this. And then wanting to do it, my mindset, and as people sort of fall by the way, so it give me strength, it give me determination. Exactly the same on SAS selection. It's that self-motivation. That looking down that line again, there's 280 of us, 283, I think, and I looked down and I went, these are all bigger than me. These are going to smash the yards. They're going to do this and that. Now, by week two, half of them are gone. Mm. By week three, another. And he just grew with that strength. And it was all down to self-motivation and the mind. I want to do it. Yeah, I'm making. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, I don't know how much more I can go. But until they tell me I can't go any further, I'm going to keep going. I can imagine it's, um, it's, it's a consistency of perseverance as well. Because you only have to say that you don't want to do it once and it's all over. Yep. You don't get a second chance. There's yeah. no, you want to think about it. Like we on the show, we go, do you want to think about that? No. Then that's what they're after. They're after that person who can. Go, why I love my little motto, always a little further. Yeah. It's definitely you. It's over to you. You can, you can throw it. And, and I watch good people and they're good soldiers, great soldiers. They just didn't have that. Because that's what it's, and it's all based on, you know, the, what the regiment does. And you're, you're going to, you're most likely going to find yourself in that place where, you know, there is no, direct and staff answer to what's coming in front of you. There is no, you might have done a lot of training, but you probably haven't trained for this. Now you've got to think outside the box. Now you've got to find that reserve and go come up with an option mm. and a solution. And that's what you're looking for. And you, then that is exactly what selection is about. Now, any soldier out there listening to me now, uh, who's had a guard selection, we, like I did, I thought it's all about the first phase. The phase, first phase is over the mountains, all the long marches, the pack marches, the deer, the speed. And we all think that. It's all about the fitness. It's not. And now as a DS, I, I realise, we don't even look at the blokes mm. at that phase. Let's get that month out of the way. Let's filter all those hundreds of people out of the way. And then we're left with 40 people who go to the jungle. And now what are we after? Now this is what the, 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 this is the window into the regiment now. Let's get them in the jungle. You, you've literally, you've got eyes on them all the time you really peel them back to who really are you? And it's, there's nothing special about SAS selection. 
it's it's basic soldiering it's basic drills it's about how you act and how you perform because we can all put on a show in front of the directing staff when we're tired and he's there so you carry your rifle and you're nice with everybody else but what you don't see is we see when you don't see us and we're watching you know as soon as i'm out of the way the big guy's pushing the little guy out of the way and he won't carry the weight and he throws his weapon down and and that's what we're looking for and that's what lets them people down you know and, and then you choose a way at them and it's they look for that excuse and they'll, they'll never go it's too hard because it is too fucking hard it's too hard <laughs> mentally and physically yeah. but they'll never say it it's yeah. i'm missing my wife or i can't get on with him the ds didn't like me shut up you just weren't good enough so you you've um you know, you, you've done the selection yourself. You've also been a DS a number of times and you've done, you know, the, the TV show in Australia and the UK. Do you think you have a sense of who the people are that are going to thrive and the people who, who are going to fall a little bit? I think so, yeah. I, there's always the one that surprises you. And it's normally, you know, I kind of now should should be able to judge all of them. And it's, you know, we, again, we all do it. It's like if you say to somebody, hey, What's an SAS guy look like? What do you think? People go six foot six, V-shaped, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Absolutely fucking not. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. So now having having been the window into the parachute region, the window into the into SAS selection and, and judging people, because we do a lot of that when we're out on the ground, you know, reading people's yeah, I get a real good judge. You can go, you know, yeah, he's fit enough, but you know. It, he's probably not like he's probably disciplined him or she's disciplined in one direction and anything out of that is out of comfort zone it's how they're going to deal with that and you can probably think i can see he's a big old guy and he can do that but he, if he don't get his two showers a day and his ways yeah, not yeah. going to last long you can yeah. just read it and yeah yeah i can read pretty well most people well one of my friends was in the, the last season the last uh season of sas australia um for us, uh, was 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 he? He actually did quite well. Um, did did he surprise you a bit? He surprised me with how fucking argumentative he was. It was <laughs> mate. He was brilliant. He was yeah. fit as a fiddle. He was tough as nails. And we we kind of liked having that little bit of controversy for a bit. But then there's got to be a come a point to move on to the next. And and he just wouldn't let it go. He's yeah. just for us. He's just yeah. the way he is. It was awesome, and and you got to look at could I could I be in an observation post for five days watching a target with somebody like Faz? <laughs> could I fuck? We'd end up killing each other. We'd end up fucking setting the observation post on fire and walking away because he's he's just one of them people, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. But I love his his you know his strength of character. He just he sticks by what he believes, and and you ain't gonna change it. In terms of his fitness, he was phenomenally fit. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, he, he was right up there with Merrick and um, the Oni Badger and everybody else. He was he was a tough fucking dude. And if you think about it, because of his his mannerisms or demeanor, whatever you want to call it, you know, we, we were like, God, jeez, oh, I, I don't even want to tell him off anymore because I'm tired of it. <laughs> but he, he was obvious. He was he was winding us up and he, he was winding everybody else when he was getting too much. Well, he knew he was on he television. Was, yeah, there was a bit of that, mate. He was, yeah. play, he was playing that and he was... But he, he got punished more than everybody else because he deserved to be. You know, he was wet at it, but he kept going. He's a little machine. He just yeah. keeps going and keeps going. And he was, he was good. He was very good. He was just, I liked him. He made me laugh because he yeah. just knew, you got to get someone out of this bloke. He's, he's just going to be, you know, he just, no matter what you said to him, he'd look you in the face and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as you turn your back, he'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> we 
were there moments you were like, oh, I'd love to laugh, but I just, I know I have to yell at him right now. Yeah, loads of them. I mean, I, I can't figure exactly what the thing was. Something happened on the square and it was blatant he'd done something. And I was like, I can't believe he's going to, what he's just done. And what he's just said, and he said something, and then he said it again. I was like, oh my fucking God. I was biting my lip thinking, I'll look out the window and try and keep this. Yeah. And then there's that, that incident, which I didn't see at the time, where he runs in with a bloody piece of metal and the glove on him. <laughs> what the fuck was that all about? But yeah, no, he, he was quality, mate. He really was. He was just, he's just one of them people. He's set in his ways and he believes in what he does. He's hard to, he'd be a difficult, close team player, I think. Well, he was never going to be a soldier. He's an actor, you know? It's, yeah. For the acting world, he, he's great. He's disciplined in that. I'm a character now and that's all I'm going to be. I'm bang, bang, yeah. bang. And I think yeah. he, he brought that character mentality with him and he weren't going to be told different. Um, I wanted to go back to, you were talking about the fact in 91, 92, 93, 94, when those guys wrote the books about Bravo 20 and, um, you know, it was, it, it was, it was something that was received relatively poorly within the regiment. Whereas now you have, I think all of the guys who are doing SAS Australia have written books. <clears throat> they all have public profiles. You all do, you know, public speaking engagements. How, how did things change? Why have things changed? Well, I mean, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you where it first changed for me, right? So I left the regiment and bear in mind, you know, it's all cloak and dagger. You, you spend all your life denying who you are, where you are. When I left, I went into probably the highest profile job you could. I, and it, it was a job I needed. And there was no other way around it. I was going to be in the press. I was going to, so it happened. So I kind of... This was being a bodyguard for, for celebrities. Angelina and Brad, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Angie and Brad. And, and it was... It was a bit, oh, shit, how do I deal with this? But he's kind of, right, can't focus on what I'm supposed to do. Look after these, don't worry about all that. And it, I was kind of getting used to just being in the public eye, being on in a magazine, da, 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 all this sort of stuff. And it wasn't comfortable. And But I never really spoke about it. I remember really, every time I picked up a magazine, I was, in CIA, I was in the CIA, I was in MI5, I was in the SAS, I was in the SPS, I was in... You know, they were guessing, they were guessing, and it was all this sort of stuff. They knew I was ex-military, I was ex-special forces of some sort. And then the other side to that kind was, and I'll talk about it on my toys, I was meeting every everybody I met around the world, all the other body, bodyguards, all the other heads of security, were all ex-SAS. Yeah. And I went, hang on, I don't fucking know any one of you. And I know virtually everybody that's been in SAS because we're so small, and even now, I could, you know... And I realized a lot of people were living on our name, our reputation, and, and yeah, right. taking all these jobs. And I thought, it, it, and I had a very particular incident, which I, won't, I don't want to talk about on this, because I'll talk about it on my show, you know, where it, which made it to the point where if I, I denied I was in the regiment, I denied this, and then I was missing out on things, and I was not being taken, you know, um, seriously enough on some of the things that tasks I was doing in, in the security world now, because this guy here, Oh, but he's, he's ex, ex SAS and he's done fucking bloke was Italian. He couldn't even speak English. So when was he in the SAS? And it was it was ridiculous, you know. And I ended up meeting—I won't say exactly who—but I ended up meeting the son of a king who had a bodyguard who was also. And then he came walking in the room, and I turned around and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he knew I knew, and he, he did the best stunt ever. He pulled his phone to his ear and he went, "Ah, oh, sorry, boss, I've got to go." <laughs> did a runner, and I thought, "I'm fucking tired of this. I'm yeah. tired of this." So I then started saying, yeah, yeah, I am in the SS. Yeah, I was in the SS. And, you know, so I was, the line I was already, because of the job, 
I was not getting the rec recognition, not the recognition, this sort of responsibility I should have had and it was because I wasn't. And then I decided, fuck it. Yeah, I am, you know? And then thereafter, the book thing. So how did you out yourself I, then? How did you out yourself? You know, you said you were identifying yourself as a former SAS soldier. Was this, uh, you know, in some gossip mag or, you know, uh, Brad and Angie's publicist or? It, it was just, it was just people as I, as I was meeting as people. As people approached you. Know, you. Yeah, as people approached me. Yeah. Hey, so are you, were you in the army? You know, I was in the SAS. Yeah. You know, and I felt weird saying it, you know, because I'd spent all this life denying it. Now I'm trying to justify it. It, it was weird. Mm. And it's still weird, to be honest. But, but then you realize, like I say, as time's moved on, you know, we're all accountable. There's more about where, what the regiment's done. Did it, you know, I, I was fucking in my being home after, like you just talked about, the, the hostage rescue thing. And I hadn't said nothing to anybody. And I, was, I sat with my dad and my mom, and, and there it's all over the screens. I was like, and the information that was coming out on there, I was like, you know, how the hell did I know that? And mm. I didn't say anything. And my old man, as we walked out the pub, he goes, put his hand on my shoulder, he goes, you were there. And I, I never said that. I was like, whatever. And I walked off. And to this day, I never said anything else about it until I didn't know. He actually knew until the day I died. He had all the paper clippings. And I never spoke about it. Yeah. You know, it was out there. Other people do. So I started to say, yeah, I was in the regiment. And admit that, yeah. But then what comes with that is a security worry you know because then people go oh. but then that's for me to deal with you know i had to work i had to do and i was out there it was what what sort of security concern do you think exists you know you got always got to worry about your family and stuff like that and you know and there's there's weird people out there and not yeah. so nice people that want to fucking probably have a go at you you know so it's about being a little bit more sensible and alert as best you can and just being aware of that yeah. So yeah, you've got to you've got to sort of take that on the chin if you're gonna, you know, step out and, and do what we did. I mean, and, and like I said, and I, I didn't take the bodyguard job because it was a bodyguard. It was this glamour. I took the bodyguard job because I needed a fucking job. Yeah. I needed to work, and it was good pay, and I knew how to do it. I could use all my skills, because you know, and, and that's a weird thing that I, I hate about. Sometimes how we do get talked about or treated sometimes by the older boulder of the, the, the regiment is, yeah, but you shouldn't be using the skills on the regiment and talking and doing all that operation, not the operations, right, you shouldn't be talking about that. You shouldn't be using all those skills about that, that was what you taught in the regiment should all be, hang on a minute, that's like saying, all right, you've just done your four years degree at university, but now you're not allowed to use it out there. Yeah. Don't do it. You're like, fucking hang on a minute, that was my university. I give 27, I had to say 27 years of my life to the military. It was actually 30 something I gave, you know? Well, what do you want me to do? Just come out and fucking become a plumber or a bricklayer overnight. Yeah, yeah. So, so there was that side to it. But then jumping forward, if you want, the books, well, why do you write? The reason I wrote a book was, every time I was out, right, I'd be out and I'd be with my, with my daughters and my kids, uh, sorry, with my mates, and my daughters would come and join me at the end of the night and have a beer. And you'd be with the lads, and, and then we'd be having some cracks, some banter, and they were going, oh, and that time when you did this, did this. And my daughters would go, the next day, I'd go, Dad, hey, how come you never told us about this? Yeah. You never told us about that. It was hard enough anyway, because I was never home, and I thought, I need to kind of justify myself here. So I started writing my memoirs, and I was being asked to write books, write books, write books. And if you read my book, my autobiography, there is nothing about operations in any of that. Mm. Not one fucking bit. I don't need to. I, I can talk about how I felt and what I did, a little bit of what was the regiment, you know, just an, a very broad brush. I don't talk about the operations. I don't talk about going through doors and shooting people and bullshit and all that. 
fucking nonsense, you know? So I don't give any weight. It's my autobiography. It's more about my life's journey of trials and tribulations and what I got right and what I got wrong. And now I went from being nothing and nobody to being somebody, but, you know, beat but that was all because people gave me opportunities. And, and now I'm the old man at the end of the fucking story. That's now trying to give <laughs> other people uh, opportunities based on what my life. And that's what that book is about. Yeah. It's not about, you know, and you know, you sell books by who was he? He was SAS. He was a sniper. He was this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. I don't have to be jumping up and down. Well, I've done this and I've done that. I, so, so that's why I, I, you know, I came out to say, yeah, I am regiment. But I always try to stay. I don't, I always try not to, you know, talk too much about operations. I still find it uncomfortable, but yeah. I won't talk about it unless it's already out there anyway. And I still just don't elaborate on anything that I shouldn't. Um, just to close the circle, um, how did you end up doing this uh, this television show or these television shows? Who approached you? How did you end up doing it? Right, something that a lot of people don't know is, um, you know, I so I leave the army. I start this side of the camera. I'm protecting people who on TV and doing yeah. all that stuff. And then just after I've been with um, Brandon Andy for about 17 months or something, I got a phone call out the blue. I was coming, I was taking a bit of leave and somebody says, hey, we've been giving your number. We're doing a program called Unbreakable. And we're taking basically, I'll cut it really short. We're taking a bunch of people to the jungle and then we're going to take them somewhere else. Then I'm going to take them somewhere else. And the first phase is four or five days and we need a jungle expert to push them through the places and try and break them. Yeah. Um, they're so fit. They're so, you, you can't break them. They're so, I went, oh, really? So yeah. we had this conversation and they asked me to go and I didn't really want to do it, but this guy was so persistent. And I'll tell you how, he kind of wore me down. Yeah. And I went, right, okay. <laughs> this is the funny bit of it. So I said, hang on a minute. I, I, why are you asking me? There's a lot of fucking jungle. And he goes, because we, we call the jungle school in Belize and there's an officer running it there that you took through jungle training. And he says, you're the probably the most horrible bastard in the world, but the best jungle instructor we can find. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, that's what we want. This horrible person. I went, okay, you made me laugh. And so <laughs> to, the, to the degree, I literally flew in from being with Brad and Angie, landed in Heathrow, and they flew, sorry, flew. They, they met me at the airport as I landed to talk about this, do this thing. So I said, okay, I'll do it. So I did it. So I went out and did this TV program out in the jungle somewhere. I can't remember, Ghana or somewhere. I can't remember. And I took these four, these eight people through this thing. And anyway, it's called Unbreakable for the reason you can't break them. 40 minutes fucking later, we had to stop the program because I told them what was going to happen and then rejig it because I broke them all. Anyway, so that was the first introduction. What was it? What did you break them with? Just the fact that I said, you know, I had this meeting and... and because I didn't get a lot of time to say, I'm going to do this. We didn't get to discuss. And I said, listen, let me tell you something about the jungle. You want to take these civilian people to the jungle who were all good, fit people, really nice, good. And they were tough. Yeah. The jungle's different. You're not acclimatized. It's dirty. It's stinky. It's claustrophobic. It's, I said, we have SAS guys die in the jungle. What are you, ta- what, what are you talking about? Yeah. They wouldn't listen. I said, <laughs> anyway, so we landed. We had to go from A to B. The light was coming down. We're in a swamp and you can't bash her up in a swamp. You're going to get into life. So I had to get them from two kilometers through the jungle in about, you know, less than two hours, which is a lot of going. That's like yeah. going 50 miles in five hours. I'm not, it's hard, it's horrendous. They've never, yeah. they've just got off a freaking helicopter. So I, I'm pushing them through these paces to get them to where, cause I need to. And they're, they're just dehydrating and falling over, dying. <laughs> so I eventually get them to the point where they, and, and bear in mind, 
I, I, I'm in the jungle. The jungles are hard to navigate. So yeah. I'm now going to find these people where the cameras are going to be. So I'm navigating. I'm dragging this lot behind me. So the, the cameras see them at the start, then I'm off to get them to this point. And by the next time they see them, I've already got two or three of them collapsing and they're in shit state. So I get there and I'm fuming because this is dangerous. Yeah. So the, as I'm there, I'm, I'm like, where's the producer? I want to talk to the producer. I'm pushing the camera out of the way. And as I'm, as I'm getting, getting hold of the, the producer, I scream, Billy! I'll turn around. And one of them's now collapsed and he's going into fits. And I was like, and we've got the doctor on him, do, 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 do. and then I grabbed the producer and I was like, I fucking told you. And then we rewrote it. We changed it. We made it a program. So we, it came out, did it, did it. And it kind of put me off. So that yeah. was my introduction to it. Yeah. That was my, and when I did it, I, you know, they said, hey, we've got this idea. Would you do this? Will you do that? Will you do this? And I wanted to, the only thing I wanted to do was work with deprived kids. So I'll do something with deprived kids. And they did, at the time, they didn't really have any. I went, no, I'm not interested. And they kept asking and asking. I said, no. I said, I don't want to be part of it because you weren't listening and it's dangerous. And I didn't feel comfortable. The cameras yeah. were on your face and you're yeah. trying to do real things. It, it was just weird. So I left it. And then I ended up getting, getting played a part in a movie with Sean Penn, for, which came out the blue and I wasn't ready for, but that was a bit of fun. And then so sometime later, I'd just come back off a, a trip and uh, I had, while I was away on the trip, I got two producers calling me, one from Channel 4, who was going to do this program, SES, who dares wins, and another one saying uh, they're doing a program for, I think it was the BBC, which was um, Special Forces, Are You Tough Enough, or whatever it was called. Mm. And I looked at both, and I went, no, nah, I'm not interested. As soon as I heard SES, I thought, I'm not doing it, because there'd been so many cheesy, not good things, you know, people garroting people in the middle of the night, and all this nonsense, and I thought, I don't want to yeah. be part of any of that bullshit. So I said, no, not interested. It was a friend who asked me, and I said, no. Then, same time, oh, will you do this one, S7? I said, what's that about? He says, well, it's teams of guys, people are put into teams as if they're SAS, and, and it's the, the Aussies come over and, and train them for two days, the Brits will train them for two days, the Americans train them for two days, the Spetsnaz. Okay, that's not so bad. And also, it's uh, Freddie Flintoff, the cricketer who's also in a full Freddie Flintoff. I like him. He likes yeah. to have a drink. So yeah. do I. Oh, I'll, <laughs> say, I'll, I'll have a look at that. <laughs> so that was, I was going to do that. And it ran the same time as SAS Who Dares Wins. Anyway, long, long story short, I went away, did a bodyguard job in Nigeria, came back. The night I went down to meet the production team, we're going to start filming this program, SFI Tough Enough thing. I, I basically collapsed. I, I ended up in hospital with uh, cerebral malaria. I oh, think I died. So, so I could have done it, but I thought I'll have a, a week off. I ended up in hospital intensive care, whatever. I ended up in, so I didn't do it. And it went out. SES1 went out, I forgot all about it. And I'm away again in the same place where I got malaria, actually some time after I recovered. I'm out there and I get another call. And uh, Sorry, I'd just come back and I was all right. And I get this call and it's, again, it's, uh, it's one of the producers and he goes, hey, we'd really like you to come on the program, SES with Desmond. And so I went, no, 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 no. And he went back and forth, back and forth. And he wore me down and I says, listen, mate, I'm not coming to London. He goes, I'll come to Hereford. And he literally jumped in the car and came to Hereford three hours later to talk to him. I thought, well, he's keen. Yeah. So we chat chatted and he told me what the program's all about. And I says, I don't know, mate. Let me think about it. So he gave me USB and I was going back out to Nigeria on another bodyguard job. And he said, just have a look at it and see what you think. So I took it out with me and I looked at it. I watched the program and I thought, actually, you know, it ain't too bad. I mm. could probably, it's not about, hey, look at me, I'm SAS and I've done this. It was more about the people and, and we were there to add a bit of authenticity to it. So mm. I thought, yeah, actually, that's, that's not so bad. I'll, so that was it. Long story cut short. That's what I said. Yeah, okay, I'll do it. And then Did I'll you, join the, the rest of the lads in, uh, on series two in the jungle. And that was my first sort of 
back in front of a camera and doing stuff. And this was seven years later after doing that unbreakable thing, you know? Um, okay. Well, let's finish up with, with, um, asking about what the show's like. Uh, if somebody comes along, what, what are they going to experience? Yeah, it's, it's again, it's, it's my life's journey, you know, from uh, it's, it's a classic naughty kid who did all right in the end, who even today I ask myself, how did I get to there? And you can, I'm not one of these people, right? Who likes to give you the quotes and all this bullshit. It's bullshit to me. Take a bite of the earth and make it yours. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> it's nonsense. I'll tell you from where I started and I was a bad child and I was, and I had, you know, my life could have gone one way or the other. And, and I'll talk about the, the trials, tribulations, the rights and the wrongs, and it's not to be big and it weren't big and clever some of the decisions I made, but why I did it and what I did to counter it. The influential people along that track that gave me the opportunity to to survive and be where I where I ended up. You know, so that's what it's about. You know, I talk from my own life to growing up to uh, military career, um, both sides of the military career, the Paris, the SAS, and then the transition of leaving where my life from doing that turned up my charity sort of life and how I got into that and what I think about that and my way of thinking and to where I am now, you know, and what I'm doing now and what, what position in life I've got with the platform that I have and what I'm doing with it. And, and to be honest, it's so people say, well, what is it? And I hate saying it's, it's inspirational. It's this, but the weird thing I've had is I look at the audience and I get such a diverse bunch of audience. I get from a nine-year-old to a 90-year-old. Mm. And I've always, and on two or three occasions, I've had a full house and my eye, I can't see anybody else, but I always lock onto the old couple out of there. And I never see them smile when anybody else is slapped. And I'm thinking, oh God, this ain't gone down too well. And then I've come off stage and I'll tell you, man, honestly, it, it, and it gives me fucking so much joy. They come to me and go, and I've had old people at night and go, that was the most inspira inspirational um, talk I've ever been to or ever heard and I'm like what I actually did a a cruise for Saga which is all the oldies from 50 to they're all 90 yeah. and mate it was packed, yeah, that's packed. Right. and they're all like wow that was just and I just think wow but it's and a lot of people can and I think my people like it so you'll all be able to relate to that was my childhood that's how I grew up yeah. wow I can you know and I was told I'm going nowhere I'm, I'm not going to be anything my school teacher says I'm just a waste of freaking oxygen. He says you really are. You, you just, you just trouble. You're going nowhere. Blah blah blah. And I thought, all right, I'd like to go back and see him. Not to say show him wrong, but say yeah, yeah you, you were probably right. I could have. I was. I was it was a fine balance between. You made some good decisions along the way, and you ended up somewhere else. Yeah, but that yeah. wasn't just all me. It was based on, you know, gravitating to the right people and learning from people who'd been there and done it and choosing the right path eventually. But yeah, so that's what it's all about. Champion, Billy. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's, it's, been, it's been greatly appreciated. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And likewise, I'm looking forward to reading your books, actually. I'm going to read them over the next couple of days. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. That was Mark Billy Billingham. Now, if you'd like to get face-to-face -face with Billy, uh, the first opportunity is on the 7th of May in Sydney at the City Recital Hall. On the 9th of May, he'll be at the Tivoli in Brisbane. And on the 10th of May, he'll be at the Athenium in Melbourne. If you'd like to book tickets, then you can go to Mark's website, markbillybillingham.com or livenation.com.au. 
You can also check out Mark's book or Mark's latest book. He's got a couple. Uh, he has an autobiography called The Hard Way, Adapt, Survive and Win. And he also has a thriller, a fiction book called Call to Kill, which is, I think, coming out pretty soon. That's it for the show right now. Uh, we have another Special Forces story coming up in a couple of weeks' time for Anzac Day, and that's a, a really unique Aussie Special Forces story, so I hope you stick around for that. And until then, follow your bliss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.